Hello and welcome to our new podcast series, Voices from the Neighborhood. I'm Hendrik. And I am Tom. We're part of the working group Perspectiva Ost of the grassroots think tank Polis 180. And as a group, we want to look east and talk and listen to people. And in that way, get a more nuanced view of what's going on in the countries, which are often generalized as post-Soviet. And Tom, could you maybe tell our listeners what this podcast is going to be about? Sure. As part of Polis 180, uh, which has a great network across the whole of Europe, we are convinced that an exchange of opinions, strategies and experiences can help a lot to put progressive issues on the political agenda in Europe. In order to promote this exchange, we want to introduce various actors and organizations that work on progressive issues in our immediate eastern neighborhood. For our first three episodes, we have chosen the ever-topical issue of environmental activism, which is currently receiving a lot of attention throughout Europe. Is there a Friday for Future all over Europe? What problems do environmental activists face, for example, in Kyrgyzstan, Ukraine or Russia? And what can we learn from organizations that stand up for climate justice in our eastern neighborhood? As it says in the name of our podcast, we want these voices from the neighborhood to be heard. Okay, so our podcast series starts with an environmental initiative from Russia. And we are very happy to have Julia with us, who is currently doing her PhD at the university in Munich dealing with local election and opposition in Russia. Hi, Julia. Hi. Um, I think most of us hear about Russian political affairs here and there. And um, of course, the recent poisoning of Alexander Navalny was covered in the news all over the world. Such a huge country with such a complex history. Um, can you give us a little crash course on what this political situation in Russia is, is currently about? Sure. So uh, Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, is ruling the country since 2000. And um, even though with a four-year break as a prime minister, since the constitution did not allow him to run a third time in a row, as Medvedev's presidency came to an end, Putin publicly declared that he intended to run for a third presidential term. And uh, together with the highly fraudulent elections to the state Duma in 2011, this served as a catalyst for the upsurge of mass protests um, that started in December of that year and that swept through Moscow and several regions and cities in Russia. This wave of protest truly came as a big shock to the Russian political establishment. And um, But by summer 2013, the protest movement had run out of steam. And since then, the regime proved quite stable, we could say. Most recently, in July of this year, um, Russia adopted major amendments to its constitution that will theoretically allow Putin to stay in power even far beyond 2024. So, um, yeah, the, it's quite a long-term perspective. So, um, would you say this is a point where it turns into an authoritarian system? Yeah, um, actually, I would say that um, already since the early 2000s, Russia's political system has become increasingly authoritarian and is today characterized by most as um, an so-called electoral authoritarian regime, which means that it's a distinctive type of autocracy um, that operates behind a democratic facade of competitiveness by holding regular multi-party elections. But these elections are not free or fair, and the profound and systematic violation of democratic principles renders these elections rather instruments of authoritarian durability um, rather than democratization. 
opposition victory in in yeah in Russia's political system today is quite unlikely. About all oh, um, when it comes to important elections, such as on the national or regional level. And moreover, we see state harassment, repression, targeting regime critical candidates, and this makes political activity rather costly, in particular for those actors that strive to change the current power structure. Okay, so you um, you mentioned that political activity in the opposition can be rather costly, he said. Um, and in this podcast, we also want to talk about activism. Um, so how would you describe the situation for activists in Russia? Well, if we look back maybe in the last 10 years, let's say, so since we had this wave of protests that I just mentioned from 2011-2013, repression against regime opponents, human rights activists and so forth has steadily increased and has made um, um, opposition political activity even more dangerous in today's Russia. So there are attacks, arrests, office raids, threats against journalists, um, opposition politicians. Um, this is quite common. and. The authorities also pursue numerous legal cases against individuals, activists who participated in, in anti-government demonstrations and in order to discourage protests. Um, the most recent examples of the level of repression and campaigns against opposition um, activity, as you just mentioned, is the um, poisoning of Navalny. And there's also been a very tragic case of the journalist Edina Slavina in Nizhny Novgorod, who died of self-emulation um, after harassment by authorities. Nevertheless, I mean, now the picture I painted It's quite dark. Um, the political opposition in Russia is not without successes. So, for instance, during 2019 and 2020 local elections, the opposition, including activists, um, has scored some significant electoral successes in several city councils, for instance, in Moscow last year or in Tomsk and Novosibirsk this year. All right. I mean, those were many rather dark perspectives. So it's good to hear that there are glimpses of hope in the local elections. But turning away from party politics and elections, uh, what about civil society movements? Can you tell us a bit about them, how they work and what the government's attitude is towards sure. them? So actually we have quite an interesting um, picture here because on the one hand, um, the Russian state encourages those elements of civil society that it considers helpful. So, for instance, there has been an expansion and also professionalization of state funding mechanisms for civil society. Um, and here we see a prioritization of socially oriented civil society organizations that provide welfare services along, alongside public providers, for instance. Okay, and what happens with those which are not considered helpful? So, non-desirable civil society organizations have been under increasing pressure, actually, since the early 2010s through a variety of means. Above all, this works through legal repression. So, for instance, um, we had the introduction of the so-called foreign agents law in 2012, which was designed to regulate activities of NGOs that receive money from foreign sources or are engaged in political activity, um, or the law on undesirable organizations, which um, gives prosecutors the power to extrajudicially declare foreign and international organizations undesirable in Russia and just shut them down. At the same time, despite these increasing difficulties, or, well, maybe you could actually say as a reaction to these, 
organized civil society has professionalized quite to some degree in the last years. Um, and for instance, um, by transforming their mobilization and funding strategies um, as a reaction to these increasing difficulties. And I mean, in the last years, apart from organized civil society, we've also been hearing about a lot of protest movements, right? Um, could you tell us a bit about their role? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, actually, the last years have seen several big protest movements um, in Russia. I mean, there have always been a lot of local protests, um, to to be precise, that have not made it into into international use. Um, but the last um, years, we have seen quite some big protest movements. So, for instance, we had the um, protest summer in Moscow last year as a result of the non-registration of several candidates for the City Duma elections. We have had a very big environmental protest in Shias um, in northern Russia from 2018 to 2020, or um, the most recent protest movement in Khabarovsk um, that has been going on for several months now and is quite big. Okay, this actually makes me all the more excited to learn about the movement that you're going to present to us today, because you talked to an actual activist from Russia, right? Could you give us a quick intro to the topic? Um, so, I mean, I just talked about um, increasing restrictions, right, in Russia civil society, but... Um Russia civil society is super diverse and it's very active. And um, we're talking about environmental um, activism today. And when it comes to environmental initiatives, a big topic that activists have been engaged um, in relates to the issue of waste management. Um, specifically, um, there have been growing landfill troubles and this has um, become a big concern to both the public and the government in Russia in the last years. Um, because currently more than 90% of waste in Russia is brought to landfills. And uh, maybe some of you have heard about the anti-garbage um, protest movements in 2018 and 19 that I just mentioned in the town of Shies. This is a town in northwestern Russia where local activists set up a camp to block the construction of a landfill. And this landfill was meant to house trash from Moscow. And this camp has inspired a nationwide movement against the Russian capital's plans to export its garbage to poorer and less populated areas in the Russian hinterlands. By the way, the protest in Shias was successful. Um, there has been a, a regional um, arbitration court that ruled that the construction at Shias is illegal. And so the building was uh, torn down. But um, while this landfill will not be built there, this has still not solved the garbage issue, which is a real big issue in Russia. And so the association um, I talked to um, is approaching this garbage topic from another angle. Instead of burning waste, their mission is reduce, reuse, recycle. And their mission is also reflected in their name, Razdenizbor. It's an association for ecology and environmental protection, or actually they, they call themselves a movement. Um, and Razdenizbor, um, translated into English, means separate waste collection. And I talked to um, one of the activists, um, Anastasia Kovshinova, who is the PR and social media manager of Razdenizbor. All right, you definitely get me curious, and I'm sure our listeners as well. So let's just go ahead and listen to your interview. Today we will talk with Anastasia Kovshinova, PR and social media coordinator of the movement, who will tell us more about Razdenizbor. Um, Hi, Anastasia. <laughs> Hello. Hi, it's good to hear you. Yeah, it's good to hear you too. 
How long have you been with Razdeni Zbor? And uh, can you introduce our listeners to your movement? Uh, okay, so I started volunteering for Razdeni Zbor in uh, 2018. And the movement itself, um, well, we work with waste, <laughs> with waste management. And we're trying to promote recycling in Russia. So we organize uh, events where people can bring their, uh, well, their stuff to be recycled. We also help people to make sure their special like containers, boxes for recycling uh, in their near their houses. We work with businesses too. For example, sometimes we can. Uh, sometimes a company comes to us uh, and asks us questions like, "How do we uh, become more?" Uh, environmentally friendly so we can answer those questions that sounds great and um so and did i get it correctly so from the one side companies or businesses address mm -hmm. you but um, i also know that you cooperate with businesses um for organizing waste separation how does this work uh well we uh we cooperate with businesses whose main so they work with waste they they may be uh for example a business can collect empty plastic bottles is just one example from uh, from people in the neighborhood and they process it and they make make um, well make something that they can actually sell forward or to produce certain objects from it so we help those businesses to um, well for example to to talk to people uh, we can give them recommendations how to make sure that people Uh, understand what is expected from them <laughs> properly because people not well most people in Russia they don't know um, differences between different types of plastic for instance and it needs a lot of explaining and a lot of talking to talking through for example to make sure that people don't put um, I don't know, plastic boxes where only plastic bottles belong And we also help people because there are a lot of people who want uh, recycling facilities to be, uh, well, to, to, to exist, basically. They want uh, to be able to recycle, but they don't want to spend hours uh, every time they want to bring their bottles somewhere. Uh, so we help those people, we connect them with businesses. As you already said, there are some people who yeah maybe don't know um how to um how to separate and what to separate and um overall i mean establishing new habits such as waste separation is always difficult so in the absence of a culture of waste separation and recycling how perceptive are citizens for this topic overall so generally the public they they, they understand that it is an important issue they understand that something needs to be done with it um the the difference in say perception of this topic is some people are ready to do something with it themselves and some people think that it should be done for them. The main problem is that they are not informed so they don't know for example that call authorities they just can't uh, come into their neighborhood for example and put recycling box in there. Uh, they don't know that um, The recycling business that they cannot just go and uh, you know make it so that everyone is comfortable so mm -hmm. those people they themselves because normally they are they are the ones who kind of manage uh, the land so they need to uh, to be active and they need to push for and most people just they don't know that they personally can change it 
and they, if they think that they can, they don't know what steps they need to take. Actually, every time that somebody is told, okay, so if you do this and you do that, and that will change, and it actually works, those are some good examples, um, most people are quite quite happy about it. They, they, they're often very excited to know that there is an, a possibility to do it, actually. Okay, so mm -hmm. overall, people seem to be very perceptive towards the topic. The issue then is rather to, um, yeah, to make them aware of what they can actually do and maybe even to encourage them to become active. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's the main issue. For some people, of course, not, not everybody would be an activist, but for some people, all that, uh, that all that is needed is some information about where to put their recycling, for example or how to properly prepare it. Um, a couple of posters, I don't know, some posts in social media. Yeah, I, I'm um, really impressed by your professional website and social media presence, because I remember I had my first encounter with Razdelny Sport actually seven years ago when I um, stood at a waste separation collection point in, in one of St. Petersburg districts. And um, at that time, it seemed to me the movement was much smaller. So I was wondering how you managed to grow that fast and also to, to professionalize in, in so many fears in such a short period of time. <laughs> um, as far as I understand from, from talking to my colleagues, it was quite small for a long period of time. And then it started growing really fast. Uh, I think personally, I think that maybe, I feel that like there's a lot of... Um, information about environmental issues uh, just in, in the general information field. Uh, it happened maybe three or four years ago when everybody started talking about environment. Uh, there were some um, really well, controversial topics like uh, shears. There was an idea to, um, to ship all the Moscow waste into a faraway northern region and just keep it there. Mm -hmm. instead of recycling it. And obviously, local people, they were not very happy about this idea. Uh, also, we came to a point where most uh, places where the big Russian cities normally dump their waste, they are almost at capacity now. So they're like 95% full or something like that. And people started hearing about that and they started listening to it and they started trying to do something about it. And also the broader, I think, international environmental movement, it got uh, louder. Uh, so it, it, it felt like it was like, like there was a lot of work and preparing and then suddenly just blew up. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, so we got into that stream of information. Now switching maybe to a slightly um, different uh, sphere, where you mentioned previously that um, obviously also authorities are involved in, in, in waste separation at one mm -hmm. point. So to further waste separation um, in Russia overall, next to working directly with the citizenry, um, mm -hmm. it probably also makes sense to address officials um, and bring this topic on the political agenda in the different municipalities. So do you also work with authorities? Well, the subject I know most about is work with local authorities. So those are very, very excited <laughs> about... Um, excited in an ironic or in a no, no, serious uh, sense? Well, maybe excited is a bit big because, well, I'm obviously excited about the topic, so everybody seems excited, but <laughs> we, have, we have really good, uh, you know, uh, feedback from them. Okay. Uh, so sometimes there's not enough information so sometimes when you just start talking to people they are very you know skeptical like what it is why but 
when we when they see what we have to uh, well, all the information we have all the expertise we have they normally really well really come forward so they may be even actually happier about having your expertise in this sphere uh yes yes some some people are well i can't say that everybody is happy and in that case we sometimes have to contact local people for example so that they could write all the uh, letters to their local uh, authorities and then local authorities understand that yes maybe we need to 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 to, to have a, a second look at that topic and, and what are then the successes of this cooperation with local authorities like what are the results uh, what local authorities can do legally is uh, they can organize some educational events. So they they can print information in their local newspapers, for example. Uh, they can, I don't know, share documents with recommendation across their network. And this is what they do quite happily if we provide that information. Uh, sometimes they can also influence, um, well, organizations that manage houses <laughs> and to advise them to, uh, to you know to, to, to assist in establishing um, a network of recycling collectors mm -hmm. networking is also important because if you know some people it's it's much easier and we we, we actually do have useful information and we can help mm -hmm. yeah this increases the trust obviously yeah. And how do you assess the perspectives of waste separation in Russia generally? Uh, well, um, the, the perspectives have to be good because we don't have any other ways, <laughs> like any other options. Uh, so it might, I, I can't um, say how long it will take or what problems we'll, we will run into along the way, but uh, at the moment about I think maybe five or four percent of all waste in Russia being recycled, which is obviously not enough. I think the perspectives are really good. I'm just a bit worried about the time it will take. <laughs> um, I can see that people, like I said before, they are really taking it on board. They're really quite uh, well happy about the fact that we can do it. Uh, I think the biggest danger at the moment is that um, well, there are certain companies which want to promote waste incineration and it is really not good because, uh, well, it can be dangerous for health, uh, it is not uh, ecologically sustainable and also if you have a lot of incinerators then there's no need to, to build uh, recycling facilities because, hey, we can, all, we can burn it all. <laughs> So it is another, um, well, another field we walk in and we are trying to explain that waste incineration is not a solution and we have some, we have a petition to, to the government, which we also promote, which we ask people to sign. Um, so I think this is the biggest, the biggest danger at the moment, this going the wrong way. And the thing is that uh, we still need to reduce and reuse and recycle. This is the thing that is sometimes uh, a bit harder to explain because uh, people still think that if we take this waste and just get rid of it, maybe burn it, maybe dump it somewhere, it stops being a problem, but it doesn't. Uh, so the wider uh, questions of, you know, maybe uh, ecological impact, they are not as, they're not as evident for people as this quite 
simple and practical question of waste management because everybody can see waste, everybody can see plastic bottles, uh, but things like climate change or uh, air pollution, they're harder to see, they're harder to understand. So uh, I think that's about the biggest challenge now to explain the wider picture. And and what you just said actually brought me to, to, a, to another question. Mm -hmm. uh, wasn't there waste separation in the Soviet Union as well? And um, how come that 30 years later, it's necessary again to put it on the agenda? Uh, well, there was waste separation in the Soviet Union. I Actually, I think there was more of a waste separation in all the countries like 30 years ago, because I talked to people from uh, Britain, I think. They said that, well, say 40 or 50 years ago, they had, well, they had more reusable glass bottles and they had people who... Uh, who travel in, like across the countryside and collecting old kitchen utensils or something like that. Uh, so maybe, I, I think there are two problems. One is an international one, because we can produce a lot of single-use and a lot of really cheap objects really quickly. And this kind of killed this idea that we need to save the resources, that we need to fix something that is broken instead of just throwing it away, that we need to, if, if, we, if we can produce uh, a milk bottle really quickly and really cheap, then we don't need to wash it and use it again. Uh, as for Soviet Union, uh, part of the reason why the, why the system was working, the system of waste separation, because, well, Soviet Union wasn't very good from the economical point of view. So there was no there was no free market, and uh, well, of course, it wasn't good for the market <laughs> or for people who possibly wanted to buy something that just wasn't produced. Uh, but it was good for uh, waste um, separation because everything was standardized, and it was quite easy to say to every factory uh, that okay, you have to produce this and that, and you can't produce anything else, which is good for resources, but maybe not very good for people. The waste management was somehow maybe structurally more implemented than it is today, which on, like, on the first perspective seems surprising. But um, from how you explained, it definitely makes sense that the economic incentives are now um, yeah, not necessarily to produce uh, the most sustainable, but um, go in the other direction. Yeah, it's like, if, for example, if somebody is, well, not very rich, quite poor and uh, they don't have a lot of money to buy food, they wouldn't waste food, which is fine for from, from the point of view of resources, but this is definitely not the way we want to move. So uh, we had no resources, so we used whatever we had. And moving to another question, is, mm -hmm. is there any form of exchange or collaboration with other organizations dealing with similar topics as your movement in the region? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, certainly. There are not that many ecological organizations and uh, we all know each other. <laughs> so yes, definitely. Sometime. For example, last week we had um, an event, sort of local conference which uh, half of the people who, who do something about environment in St. Petersburg they either attended or were invited and listened online or something. So the community knows yes. <laughs> each other well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's really a good community and we, we help each other a lot. Yeah. And are there any difficulties you encounter with your activity? Well, obviously, the I think, I think the biggest difficulty which I think that's a difficulty that all environmental organizations encounter is that we are trying to promote something new, a new way of living, <laughs> a new way of producing things. And 
people are normally not very happy to change something they are used to and that is something that is comfortable for them. Every time you try to change something, there are people who don't want to change it and there are also people who are probably interested in keeping things the way they are and there are people who are not just don't think environment is all that important. In many cases, it is quite difficult to explain to companies and producers why and how they can they can make their practices, their business practices more environmentally friendly. But here, again, I, I think that this can be worked with. Uh, we just need more, you know, more information, uh, more people reaching out because th there's this, uh, sometimes people say that there's, they're like evil people who want to drown the planet in plastic. And then they're good people who fight against drowning the planet in plastic. And they don't believe in evil people who want to drown the planet in plastic. Many people, they're just not informed. And maybe they don't understand that it is important for their own lives. So in Russia still, uh, things like climate change and all those problems, they are often perceived as something that has to do with the Arctic, for example, or the bears, jungles. Well, it's not about jungles and bears. Uh, it's the, about their own life, about the air they breathe and about the rivers they can swim in. Definitely. And yeah, maybe uh, one last question. How do you fund your movement? Um, because to the degree that it is professionalized, it um, seems to me that you cannot work without having any resources. So how does um, this work? If you can share this, of yeah, course. Yeah, 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 uh, of course. Uh, so we have donations from people, grants and subsidies from governments. And we also sell certain services to companies. For example, we can, like I, I mentioned it in the beginning, for example, if a big company wants to become a more environmental friendly one, uh, we can tell them something for free. And if they want uh, detailed recommendations, uh, they can buy this service from us. So there are several, several sources of income. And of course, all our, like we are a non-governmental organization. And of course, all our um, story about where we get our money from, it's published on our website, but it's all Russian. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's why I asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is there anything you would like to say or share with our audience? Well, maybe I would like the, to ask the audience to be, um, I guess, optimistic, because often there's this sort of feeling that uh, we're not doing enough, or maybe that people are uh, not listening to us, or maybe that uh, I, I've talked to many people who say that they feel very uh, discouraged by the fact that they there seems to be a lot of noise about environment, but not much change. And, uh, well, I think that uh, if we continue work and if we do what we have to do and we'll take care of ourselves, uh, everything will be fine. This is a very optimistic um, point to, to finish this conversation. <laughs> and I hope our, our audience um, will take up this invitation to, to remain optimistic. Thank you so much, Anastasia, for mm -hmm. taking the time and um, sharing uh, yeah, insights about Rosdelnisbor with us. And um, yeah, I wish you good luck and a lot of optimism for your further work and for your movement. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, talk about ending on a positive note. I think there's not much I want to add to Anastasia's last statement. Maybe we rather use the time to reflect ourselves. I mean, what she said about the divergence between supporting an idea and actually acting on it. 
probably applies to all of us, no? So how are we doing on waste separation and are we personally doing enough to reduce waste? Um, and maybe on another note, what about legislation? Where does the EU stand on things such as circular economy, the right to repair and waste exports? A lot of questions that I'll take home with me today. And in case you want to learn more about Rasteini Sport or Polis 180, we have put the links in the description for you. And if you want to become active yourself, feel free to join our monthly program meeting at Perspective Aust, which you can also find on our website. So I would say that's it for today. Goodbye and until next time at Voices from the Neighborhood. This Polis 180 podcast solely represents the author's opinion and does not speak for Polis 180 as an organization. Polis 180 is a grassroots think tank that translates scientific insight for political decision makers. We introduce our generation's ideas, analyses and solutions into the political discourse through innovative and inclusive approaches and develop real alternatives for constructive foreign and European policy.